0: I can grab your Bibles. We can turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Um, I'm going to grab okay. Frank. You grab these. Raise your hand if you want a worksheet. If they're not mandatory, but if you want one, Frank right? will pass those to you now. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. And one thing i realized this week is this is a topic that Paul brings up in this chapter, and it's something that we often don't talk about in youth ministry. And so because of that, what I think we're going to be doing is today we're going to briefly introduce this passage and then talk about one part of this passage, an important part, um, but a unique part because we have the opportunity to talk about it. Um, and then next week, we're actually going to deep dive into the whole passage and how that one part we'll talk about today affects the whole passage. Um, but before I do that, uh, let's pray, because this is going to be um, a heavier uh, topic sermon and thank you especially for the Lord's help today. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time and these students. I just pray um, that you would give us ears, ears and hearts. Um, that would desire to accept your truth. Um, Father, there are so many things in this world vying for our attention, and yet there is one part of this world uh, that is screaming at us, telling us um, that we need God. And so, Father, as we look at that subject today, um, I pray you would help us understand it uh, so that we would be able to worship and glorify you and see how good and how joyful it is to be a Christian. So, Father, please help us today. As we look at your word. We pray all this in the name. Amen. So Philippians chapter one, verse eighteen, says this. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith, so that indeed you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That section that we just read is the last section in Paul's report where he's explaining what's happening to him and what his circumstances are. And Paul has been explaining his circumstances in a way that would magnify Christ. And he would magnify Christ in not very good circumstances. Paul is not in a good place. This is what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks in verses 12 to verse 18. Uh, Paul is in prison. And he is chained to a Roman soldier. And even if he's time to do ministry, there are certain Christians antagonizing him and wanting to be jealous over him They're actually happy that he is in prison. And both of those things make for a very difficult situation for Paul. And yet, as Paul shares this report, he couldn't tell that it'd be difficult because his expression is so thankful. He's so thankful and happy that these things have happened for him. It's not because Paul wants to be uncomfortable, but Paul wants to be put in any position where he could magnify Christ and he could serve other believers, and that people who don't know Christ might come to Christ. And God has made all of those things possible while he's been in prison. The point that Paul has been trying to make in the last couple of verses is that Christ is using everything for good. Christ is saving unbelievers and strengthening believers, and we should see that as an ideal circumstance as Christians. And then he moves to this last section. In verses 18 to verse 26. And Paul wants to keep encouraging the Philippians. And the chief way that he does that. Is personally encouraging them. That Paul is going to see them again. He's going to return to them. And we know that that's the point. Because the first verse. And the last couple verses. Both say that. they box in that section. If you look at verse 18. The first verse. He says. Yes and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers. And the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. This, meaning my imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. And he's talking about deliverance from prison. Paul expects to be released and afterwards he wants to come and see them as soon as possible. And he says something very similar in verses 25 and 26. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith so that in me." You may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul plans to see them again. He expects to come back to them, and he knows because of the mutual love that he and the Philippians have for each other that they should thank Jesus for making that possible. And the reason they really need to thank Jesus for that is because the alternative of Paul being released is not good. You might remember if You remember way back when we looked at Acts and the context for Philippians that Paul is in prison waiting to go to trial. And the outcome could be one of two things. Either they believe that he's innocent, which is objectively true, and he'll be returned. That's what he thinks is going to happen. But the alternative is that he's found guilty. And the only result of a guilty sentence is that they execute Paul. Paul is in a tight situation because he could die. Now, he says that he believes he won't. And we actually don't know exactly how he knows. If you read it Acts, it wasn't uncommon for Christ himself or even the Holy Spirit to come to Paul and tell him what was going to happen in his immediate future. Paul doesn't give us those details, but he's confident that these things are going to work out in seeing them again. But this is really key to understanding this section. Paul does want to encourage them, but he doesn't want their encouragement to be in his circumstance. Remember what we just talked about in, in verses 12 to 18. Paul is saying, don't worry about your circumstances. Don't worry about your circumstances. Don't worry about my circumstances. No matter what happens, Christ is using everything for good. And he explains that in this section too. So the main encouragement can't be, don't worry because the circumstances will work out. Probably the opposite of everything Paul has already talked about. Which means the deep main encouragement that Paul has to give them needs to be something more than that. And that encouragement is actually found in verses 21 to 24. That Paul contemplates what could happen. Whether seeing it again or being found guilty. Paul starts talking about a deeper encouragement by speaking on the topic of death. Death is on Paul's mind. And we know that because death is mentioned three times within seven verses. And it's right in the middle section. It's the climactic point of Paul's passage. The first time death comes up is in verse 20, where Paul says, Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. he continues that thought as verse, which is, as you know, probably one of the most famous verses in the entire New Testament, where Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's literally translated to live Christ, to die gain, as if it's like, live equals Christ, die equals gain. So it's a dramatic statement, which we're going to come back to. I still need to give you the third time that death is mentioned, which you'll notice in verse 23, where Paul says, my desire is to depart, which means to die, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. So death is a key part of this argument that Paul makes in verses 21 to 24, and the argument goes like this. If you read the text, you can actually discern this for yourself. Paul's saying, if God gave me a choice to either live or die, you might think I would choose to live. And if I was given the choice. You're actually right. The conclusion of, of this argument is going to be, yes, I do want to live. But that's because I love you. But if it's about me and what I personally would want, I would actually choose to die. Because dying is a way better option. Because it was far better to depart. Which means that Paul's encouragement isn't only about returning to them, but telling them, if you know what I know, then you would know to be happy for me if I died. But that would be a good thing. And obviously that should sound dramatic to us. It sounds like Paul had a death wish. Which is super weird. Or maybe we think, well, prison was hard, and so he wants to be delivered. So if I can't get out of prison, then I might as well die because I'd be much more comfortable. But neither of those are the case. Because what Paul's actually trying to say is that this dramatic statement should actually be part of the way every Christian thinks. Paul is trying to explain how to think in the most normal way. By explaining that he wants to explain that you should have hope in death, whether it's your death or those you love, and he really goes back to that dramatic statement in verse twenty-one. Fairly one of the most famous verses in the whole New Testament that says, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is sin. All of life is about Christ; therefore, I will live for Him. But if I die, it's still a win." That's Paul's attitude towards life and death. And that's how Christians should think about life and death. And there's a reason that he needs to say that in a dramatic, provocative way. And I think the way is obvious. Because we don't think that way. We don't think that way about life. We don't think that way about death. If you look at most of our lives, our lives prove that we live for ourselves. And if you get the deepest, darkest thoughts in each one of us about death, you would see that most of us fear death a lot. It's not the greatest thing we fear. And that's why this is such an essential text, not just in Philippians, but this is an essential text for you in your whole life if you want to think about a Christian. You need to understand both parts of that statement. To live is Christ. And you also need to understand why to die is gain. Why it's better to die? And I think the reason that it's good to cover this in two sections is because there's a very simple part of Paul's argument that might make sense. Paul says to die is gain, which means it's better to die. Which I think means if you understand the second part of that statement, then you'll understand the first part of that statement. If you understand why Paul had a certain confidence about his death, then you will understand why he lived his life in a certain way. Does that make sense? If you figure out hope and death, or you figure out how a Christian should think about death, then you can live for him. Then you can actually go from this place, and that's not just a statement of what you know you should do, it's actually something you want to do. Something you're joyful to do. It's something you are passionate about. I think this is the best way to proceed from here. Just listen to the statement, okay? To die is gain. To receive, to get a gift, or to be a win, death is gain. If you think about that outside of that statement for just a second, think about how wrong that statement sounds. And I hope it's obvious to you. Why is death gain such a weird statement? Because death is like the definition of loss. When you die, you lose everything. You lose you. The existence of you is over. That's why this is such a radical statement. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to live is Christ might be obvious, but to die is gain is like the most opposite thing that makes sense. We need to understand that statement. You know why Paul isn't being over dramatic. He's being accurate what he says I've been reading a book for the last number of weeks called Remember Death by Matthew McCullough. Feel free to write it down because it's an accessible book for you that I would highly suggest you reading. It's called Remember Death. And his thesis is wrapped up in the title. His argument is Christians need to remember death on a daily basis because death is. His argument is Christians can really only live as mature and really grow to understand who Christ is and what he's done for them if they stop ignoring death. If they actually think about it. And one of the reasons he brings this up actually is because we ignore death all the time. And part of the reason we ignore death actually isn't just because we're scared of death by ourselves. It's because we live in a society that ignores death. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but basically everything about our existence in this society, in this civilization, in America, almost everything around us is designed to ignore death. I'm going to give you four examples that Matthew McCall actually gives in his the book. They're very helpful. The first example he gives is that we ignore death by dying away from society. Where do people go when they die? And I don't mean after they die. I mean, physically, where are they? At the moment of their death. They're in the nursing or they're in a hospital. Wherever they are, they're usually not in your immediate presence. My guess is most of you guys, unless you were at a funeral where the body has been embalmed, most of you have never seen someone die in any And that makes sense because death is traumatic and death is disturbing, and it feels so unnatural, of course. But you are actually very unique and privileged in your place in the history of the world because the fact is, most people in history saw death all the time. People died in their homes, people died on the street, people died to illness and famines and wars. Most babies died in childhood. And most women thought about death every time they gave a child because there was a very high chance they would die. McCullough even says, when you got married, you expected that you would have to bury your children. He you tells the story of a famous Christian man who had fourteen children and he buried thirteen of them. And he was closer to the normal than the non normal. We are in a very privileged time in human existence. However, the reminder of death and anything important that actually comes from it is loss because of how far in life we can get without ever having to think about it. The second example he gives of ignoring death is the fact that we avoid death at all costs. And I'm talking about medicine. I'm talking about advanced technology, hospitals, and procedures. We have more to help us live than anyone ever had at any time in human history. We can cure more things than anyone could have imagined even a 100, even 50 years ago. We can treat... Basically any disease. And then we do. No matter what happens, we treat it. And that's good. We we should do that. But the truth is that we're so good at fighting disease. And we're so good at prolonging our lives longer than anyone else in human history that when we don't fix something and someone dies, it feels like a failure. McCullough explains it this way: with our competency. We have grown the hope that there's always something more to be done. When doctors are accustomed to winning, however, and when patients and their families want to grasp at every sliver of hope, it can be incredibly difficult to know when to let go. But people don't die because medicine failed them. They die because of human. And our successes in treating a wide variety of once fatal problems has blinded us to the fact that you have to die of something. We're so good at living stronger, longer, and healthier lives that death itself doesn't feel normal. It feels like a failure. Example number three. We ignore death by making death unreal. It's amazing how, despite how alarming death is, and you guys probably know this, we treat death like a joke whether it's stand-up comedy or movies or television, death is funnier to us when we talk about it and not serious when we think about it. And that's because we live in a society that trivializes death. It's part of so many of our jokes, and it's the punchline in so many places in media, and more and more people, I've noticed even by personal experience, have a much more morbid sense of humor. Death is normal. And some might argue, as I argued when I was reading this book, We see death all the time though. We see it on TVs and movies, and if it comes up in jokes, that means we talk about it. So death is right there. Doesn't that mean that we take death seriously? And the answer is no. And he explains this as well. McCullough says, death may be common subject matter, but the message from our entertainment suggests that death itself is anything but common. Think about it. The deaths shown on our most popular shows are violent deaths. They're dying because of a psychopath or a mafia hitman or a zombie killed them. Where death shows up, it belongs to a fantasy world. One way or another, death is exotic. It's something that happens to someone else. Where death appears in our culture, its form is often perverse, distorted, impersonal, and detached from what is real. Death doesn't seem inevitable. Because I did not take off John Wick. No one's coming to kill me in the way that media presents it, which can make me falsely think not only that I'm never going to die, but that death might be right around the corner. Example number four. We ignore death by ignoring death. We ignore death by not talking about it. If we ever do think of death, we respond by not responding to We ignore death when people bring it up. We ignore death by removing it from our thoughts. I so saw an example of this when me and Ashley last week went and saw the Barbie movie. Um, and at the beginning of the movie, I'm not going to spoil it for you, um, but um, Barbie is going through Barbie land and it's this like perfect place where everyone is seemingly happy and everyone's having a great time, and every night there's like a party where everyone's like doing a choreographed dance, and just having a good time and talking about how perfect everything is. And if you saw the trailer, you might know where I'm going with this. Uh, eventually, somewhere randomly in the party, the main character, Barbie, uh, just says, as they're dancing and having a good time, you ever think about death? Everyone goes quiet. And everyone is looking at her what just happened? And that's what she says. What I mean is I'm dying to keep dancing, and everyone just keeps going, and then it just continues. And that is funny to us because it actually makes sense. Death ruins the party. Death ruins civilized conversation. That's why you don't talk about death. Death is the end of a good time. The reason we ignore death so badly, and the reason we're so comfortable society around us ignoring death, is because we think death is only negative. We don't want to think about anything negative. And that's not actually wrong. The Bible actually agrees with that. Isaiah 25, verse 8, Isaiah says that death has a sting. Maybe you've sung that before in church. Which means that death has a pain and a hurt. And when you think about death, it adds insecurity to your life. That's why we need to dismiss death, because death is a thing you like. If there's a huge problem. If that is your normal way to cope with dying. The problem is that it's lying. Death is the most inevitable thing that will happen to you in life recent poll showed 100% of people die. Which means it's foolish not to think about it. And actually thinking about it matters because it affects the way you view your life. And I want to talk about that in a second based on the reality that you are 100% going to die. These are three ways that if you think about death for a while, just by yourself with no other Fabric to Nothing else to it without the Bibles be on it. These are the ways you inevitably have to think about death. Number one, death will affect your importance. Death will affect your importance. Death says you're not too important to die. Everyone here is going to die, and the world is going to keep existing when we're gone. But the reality is that we don't. Think about how that should affect our self-importance now. Think about this, this this is important. We relate to this world much more on the basis of what's important to us personally than what's objectively important. So you don't think about Orange County as this place that's like the most important place objectively in the universe, but it's important to you because you live here. And you don't think about your friends and your family as objectively important in the history of the universe necessarily. You think of them as important to you because they have value to your life. And that's how we picture everything. That's how we determine the importance of anything. We determine if it's important to us or not. And the reason is because we are the most important thing in our life. That's the normal way to think. Think. Okay? Ask yourself the question. If you're going to die in the whole universe will blink an eye, and nothing is going to change. Am I object- objectively important? It doesn't seem like it. Because an incredibly small percentage of human existence is going be affected by my death. Even the people closest to me are going to keep living and they'll get over me. That's what death does. Death is Self importance because you're not too important to die. And the universe proves that because it's not concerned with keeping you alive forever. Number two, death affects your value. A famous philosopher named Albert Camus, C A M U S, once explained that all humans live in the absurd capital is absurd. You know what absurd is, right? It's weird or strange. All humans live in the absurd. And so the question is, what is the absurd? And he says the absurd is living with two competing realities in your life. And this is objective, whether you like it or not. Objective reality number one is you have dignity, you have value, you have worth. That's why you make meaningful decisions. That's why you protect yourself from death. You have dignity. And you live out that dignity by showing and experiencing and loving and absorbing all the things in this world. You see all of the beauty and all these things to be enjoyed and find pleasure in. And you and the world feel tight for your existence. You have dignity and you absorb the dignity of the world. And then reality number two, you're going to die, and you're going to fade into obscurity, and the world's going to keep going, and my contribution will go unmeasured and unnoticed. I'm going to die. That's very disorienting, because if I'm so valuable, if I feel so valuable, why do I have an expiration date? Why do I feel like I have real value, but this universe is not going to affirm my value once I'm gone? Death affects your value. And therefore number three, death affects your purpose. If I'm going to end, what does that mean for everything I've done and everything I've gained? What about everything I own? What about the relationships I've worked so hard in? Because a thousand years from now, even a hundred years from now, from hell, all of them, no matter what they are, they're all going to disappear just like I did. The reality is that death reminds me I'm going to spend a lot more time working than I'm going to spend time enjoying the things I've worked for. And very few people are going to enjoy the things I've worked for when I'm gone. So the question is, what do I do? And what matters about what I do? If nothing is going to last. And that's the point of not ignoring death. Death forces us to reassess the importance, the value, and the purpose that we naturally assume we have. Because every single person in this society that ignores death believes those three things I'm important, I'm valuable, I should be doing something with my life. And what is and the Bible actually helps us understand why we feel this weight of what Albert Thomas called the absurd. This is kind of the very beginning of the Bible. God created the world. created everything in existence. He created you. That's why you feel you're important because you are. God created you as a special and unique part of his creation. But not only are you important, you're valuable you're made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 2.22. God's breath is in your body. It's why you have value, because you're not just a collection of atoms. You're not just the reality of stardust. You are an image bearer. You have the breath of God in you. You have a soul. And that's why you also have a purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God which has spread his image and beauty throughout the world and have dominion over this world. Genesis from the very get-go says that you have importance and value and purpose from the moment that he created you. So why doesn't it feel that way? Why, when I think of the absurd, when I think of death, does it feel like a challenge to that? And the answer is in Genesis 3.19. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree and allowed death to enter the world, God cursed them and said to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. Into dust you shall return. We chose death. The cost of living as our own gods was to die. And to therefore, in the scope of existence, spend a very, very small time being fate control only to fade away. McCullough explains ours is a creative dignity, it's a derived gifted dignity. It's the dignity of the moon catching the light of the sun. And it's never been enough for us. Every human who's ever lived would rather be the sun than reflect the sun's light. We'd rather be God than rest content in his image. All of us would rather play the lead role in the history of the world. But to assert our own identity rather than receive it from God is to lose ourselves altogether in death. Therefore, death isn't the conclusion of life cycle that has run its course. It's a punishment perfectly tailored to fit the crime of sin. Death is like a megaphone telling you who you really are. We're not only mohanin insignificant, we're cosmic criminals. And here's the point. If you don't get this, then you're ignoring death. Death should humble us. Death should humble us. This is an essential part of why Paul understood he wasn't too important to suffer. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, it's an important part of why he knew he wasn't so important to be rejected and dishonored, even by other Christians. Verses 15 to 18, because death reminded him that life, even his own life, wasn't about him. Because if I am going to fade away from this universe, then I can't be of him. Especially alone. The reality is death tells us that what we normally do, which is add God as a character in our story, is the most inappropriate way we can do it. And death reminds us that God is not just another character in the story, God is the main character in everybody's story. And that's where the turn comes in. Because this is going somewhere good. This is going somewhere hopeful. But you need to get this. When death humbles you, it does change you for the better. Again, Nicola explains, when I hear what death says about me, I begin to see I'm not the center of the universe after all. I'm the usurper who deserves to be put in his place. But then I begin to see that God is the only lead in this story and that I'm a character in a story about him. And so only when I see his glory and I recognize that I am utterly dispensable then I am prepared to be amazed by the message of the gospel. Only then I can see and taste why it's a wonderful news. Because the reality is that God is eternal. He holds the keys to eternity. The whole universe therefore is about his story and that helps me to be humbled to see that. And then there's more. And then there's more. Because the reason God wants to us by pointing us to death is so that after we've been brought low then we can take a step because death points you to an unsolvable problem that God can solve It forces you to be dependent on God's solution, so that he can lead you to unspeakable joy but from the right hope that's why we don't need to ignore death Because all of death's problems have a solution in God. And the solution is found in Christ. The final way, McCullough explains this. You must hear and accept the statement that death makes about you before you can fully rejoice in the message of the gospel. Because even though death says that you are less important than you've ever allowed yourself to be, the gospel says that you are more loved than you could ever have imagined. You are not too important to die. But you are important enough that God gave his only begotten son so that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. You will not be defined by death. The gospel seen in light of what death means tells us this is so important. If you want to remember a quote from tonight, this is the quote. We are not important because we are loved. We are loved. Therefore, God says we are There's another way to say it. We are reported because we are loved, not loved because we are loved. The implication that death gives us is that it forces us to understand the gospel and it forces us to truly treasure this massive statement in the New Testament, which is this union in Christ, union in Christ. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he explained this magnum opus section of his letters, which is this. You have hope in death, because Christ rose from the dead. And the implications of that are amazing. Paul even said, if you don't believe in this, or you don't find hope in this, then verse 19, you are part of the people most can be pity. If our savior doesn't rise from the dead it makes sense that people would call us foolish and moronic but the reality is verse 4 Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture Christ rose from the dead and since Christ rose from the dead eternal life can come after death verse 22 for as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. In the same way that Adam ruined everything, and we agreed to that by living for ourselves, Christ came and proved there is life after death, He rose again prove that. Since Christ rose from the dead, that also means not only he has the power of life for eternity, but he's actually promised to restore everything in life forever. Verse 24, at the end of time, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Since Christ is going to destroy death and only leave life behind, that means you can trust both your death and your life now, what will happen after is being incorporated into a world that's been perfected of every imperfection, especially since Christ rose from the dead, that means he can offer that to you. He can restore your eternal value. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last Trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. This isn't just about Christ rising from the dead; it's pointing you to Christ rising from the dead, so you know that you, if you're united with Him, may also rise from the dead. So you die until Christ Christ comes. The dead. Death is not the end for you if you're in Christ. He says he's going to restore us, not just to eternal life the way we are now, but to glorified new immortal bodies that bear the perfect eternal work of God forever. Verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to passing the same that is written. And he quotes Isaiah 25. we already looked at Hopeful. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Should death be frightened if Christ is going to raise us to eternal life? It shouldn't be. Should death have a sting on our lives if Christ has promised to destroy death one day? Shouldn't. But you can really only find that hope if you really trust in Christ. You know why you can trust Christ? It's because Christ has explained through all of Scripture a story that leads to this fact. There's a reason that Christ is offering to you this for free. And the reason he gives is just because he loves you. That's the reason you might experience his love and therefore glorify him. By holding on to his mercy and accepting his free offer of eternal life. And we know that from so many places in the Bible. I'll give you one. Romans 8.38. You know this passage. Paul says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he has a list of all sorts of things. And the very first thing he says is, I'm sure that neither death nor life is the reality. Christ saved you and adopted you. And his love for you is so deep that he doesn't want you to just experience his love in this life. He wants you to experience his love in all its eternal death for eternity. That's how great his love is. You don't find yourself joyful in him or dependent on him. If you just want to live the rest of your life with that sting of death, then I don't think you understand how dead you are, how much you need Christ, how free this offer really is for you specifically. Because the reality is if you take all this information and you go back to Philippians chapter 1 that we're in, there's a no reason Paul is talking about death. Because all the importance you need, all the value you need, and all the purpose you need starts when you see Christ in being death for you because he loves you. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember we started this whole thing by looking at to death as gain. you know why death is gain? Because even though to live is Christ, to die is more you might have Christ now, or you might see that Christ matters now. But Christ is going to exist forever with his people in perfect fellowship for those who accept His perfect life instead of their life, and His death instead of our punishment for our sin, and His resurrection as the eternal hope that you need to live a life that would actually honor So To live as Christ, but to die. It's your Christ. And the reason we talk about that so much is number one, you need to stop living with lie that the rest of us are living. But we can just ignore that. You need to look down in the face and you need to have a answer. number two, the answer is in Christ. And He's offering you that solution because He's glorified and demonstrating His love. That's why Paul said to notice Christ to die And that's why that idea of hope in Christ loving us enough to die for us and to give us eternal life, that idea is so powerful that it actually motivates the statement that we'll look at next week to live is Christ. Father, we would be so foolish, so so foolish if even as is not back. Death is so much bigger than us. Death is immovable. But Father, regardless of how inevitable death is, we need your spirit to push us to the imperishable hope that you have stored up for us in heaven. In the same way that you promised to Thomas that you have prepared a house with many rooms. and You have told us because you are offering to prepare a room Us. Father, for those of us who know you, we need you to remind us of that. We need you to motivate us to look death in the face and say, My God and my Savior is bigger than that. And Father, for us who do not know Christ, we need you to allow death to shake up our reality. Because no matter how healthy and vibrant we seem to be now in our youth, we could die tomorrow. To that. And no one else does. Because in the same way you created the world, you created an eternal world one day, you are freely invited us in by the power of your son's blood and crooked life on the cross. Father allows us to see how radical it is to not just live you, but to see death Give us the kind of sight that Paul gives us, that we might live for you, and that we might store up treasures in heaven, rather than school, That we might be spent for the gospel, because you spent your life and your death, that you might pour out your love towards us, that we might glorify you forever. Thank you, Father, and your greatest things. Amen.